When you're trying to survive in the middle of a drought in the parched, tan desert of the Middle East, Egypt might not be the first place that comes to mind as a place to go and find food, bread. Egypt is just as tan and bone dry as the rest of the Sinai and Arabian peninsulas. But if you were Joseph's brothers, desperate and hungry from two years of drought, Egypt may be your only hope. Egypt's capital city doesn't rely as much on rain for food because they enjoy the steady year-round flow of the Nile River, moving south to north, fed by a huge lake 2,000 miles away. When nothing will grow in Jordan or Assyria or Philistia or Cana, go and beg for food from the storehouses of the Egyptians. And so there Joseph stands, in front of his brothers, who fled starvation back home to journey to Egypt, where they've heard there's bread, only to find the man holding the key to the bread box to be the little brother they hated and had thrown into a dark, empty hole in the desert. There they stand, emaciated and powerless. There he stands, well-fed and strong. Would he get his revenge on them, or would he show pity and be merciful? No one would question either decision. His word would be obeyed no matter what. And Joseph's brothers, for a moment, which probably felt like a lifetime, thought their fate was hanging in such a balance, a grain of sand might tip the scale. They'd come in desperation to Egypt. They'd hoped to find bread but they found shame and the end of a story they didn't realize was still being written. What kind of justice would Joseph choose to dispense? Life or death? Bread or revenge? My wish for you is that you'd be able to stand in the shoes of these larger-than-life biblical characters, that I could too. Visiting Israel, you know, you feel like you're as close to doing that as possible. And I'm still hopeful that one day we'll get, to, we'll get to go. But if all of us could just hear the silence of the lake at Galilee, that we could see the joy on the face of the man who 30 seconds ago had leprosy all over his body, now completely clear, that we would be so close to him that we'd still feel that it was dangerous to be near him that we could walk where the disciples did with Jesus, from town to town, fishing for people, watching God at work. The thing is, you aren't ready to stand in Joseph's shoes, and neither am I. Not yet, anyway. And trying too soon, well, it could lead us astray if we're not ready. After all, you've longed to be in his place. I know because some of you have asked me if you could be in his place. His place is this. He's the ruler of Egypt, whether by right or not. Joseph is one of the most powerful men in the world. He stands before his brothers holding their future in his hands, the power to give life or take it away. He's clothed in the finest tunic his culture and society could fabricate. His arms and hands are heavy with jewelry. 
He wears a gold band on his finger with the signet on it that means he can make decisions in Pharaoh's name without asking Pharaoh's permission first. Pharaoh doesn't even have to know about what he's doing. Joseph could command the army, sign a treaty, confirm or commute a death sentence with just a word. And maybe you don't yearn to possess that kind of power. Well, some might, but those who would forget all that might still be inclined to wish for Joseph's affluence. Besides the signet ring, the other jewelry on Joseph's arms and around his neck is just for show. And those shoes I mentioned earlier, the ones we're not ready to stand in, those are the finest quality Nile Valley crocodile skin sandals money can buy in Egypt. Still, maybe none of that means anything to you. You're just wanting enough power and control over your life to live simply and humbly. Even if you've coveted none of the things I've mentioned thus far, here's something I think you've wanted before. To see clearly God's plan for your life. Hmm? I'm speaking from experience. Some of you have asked me, Pastor, I just want to know what's God's plan for me? Joseph sees God's plan for his life clearly. While his brothers stand before him, their weak legs shaking, they're looking for the slightest clue of emotion on Joseph's face to gauge what their fate might be. Joseph thinks back over his life and sees God's hand in every place, in each dream he had, in the gift of the multicolored jacket from his father, in the jealousy of his brothers, in the plot against him, and the pit he was thrown in, in the prison, in the prisoner that he was, then slave, then civil servant, then leader of the Egyptians he became. Through all that, Joseph sees it as God's plan. And wouldn't you and I like to know what it is for us? Wouldn't you sleep better tonight knowing clearly that you stand today exactly where God wants you according to his plan for you? I know I would. Oh, that you could look back on your life this moment and see how God guided you to be the person you are and how he brought you to this moment for a reason. Maybe you do know. But if you're being honest with yourself, you'd have to admit, when you're caught saying that something you're involved in is God's plan, you really mean it's your plan and you're thinking it's his too. Because, well, I mean, let's be honest, God's plan isn't always clear, doesn't seem clear. But not for Joseph. The reason Joseph's brothers are quaking in their worn-out, cheap Canaanite sandals as Joseph reveals himself to them, shameful and desperate as they are, is because years earlier they were so mad at Joseph and so frustrated that he was their father's favorite, they decided to make him disappear, kill him. They tossed him into a pit in the desert, and while they plotted how to kill him, they came up with what they thought was a better option. Let's sell him to the first caravan of bandits that pass by. And not only will we, be, will we be rid of him, we'll make some money in the process that we can go blow on wine and women in town. And so it happened. 
but they didn't think things through too well. Well, who could have, right? Who could have known Joseph would end up working as a kind of cabin boy in the home of a wealthy Egyptian? Potiphar was his name. And soon enough, Joseph caught the attention of Potiphar's wife, but he wasn't interested. She wasn't fond of being turned down, so she lied and destroyed Joseph's name and reputation as an honest, hard-working house servant. You'll never work in this town again, Joseph thought. But it got worse. Instead of just being kicked out of Egypt, he was thrown into jail. There he was, scratching out the days going by on the wall. But he makes friends with the warden and the, jail, and the guards there. He guides them by means of a God-given gift to interpret their dreams, and they appreciate it. This doesn't go unnoticed by Pharaoh, and one day Joseph finds himself standing before the ruler of one of the most powerful civilizations on earth. Joseph's ability to interpret dreams makes him indispensable. He can see the plentiful years and the lean years coming when it comes to the harvest. So he gets put in charge of the largest food program Egypt has ever seen. The plenty of today can be stored for the coming days of nothing. And remember, Egypt is an economic powerhouse. They've got the Nile. They can eat when everyone else around them has dried up in drought. It's all the other nations who will come knocking on their door begging with gold and silver for a bag of grain. And soon enough, who should come knocking but Joseph's brothers from the east with dry mouths and empty, groaning stomachs. None other than those older brothers who started this whole course of pits and prisons and false allegations. They cry out, Joseph, remember us when you come into your kingdom. For the sake of our dad, have pity on us and help us. Joseph, well, you know the story. What does he do? Thumbs up or thumbs down to the brothers? Thumbs up. That's right. He offers mercy. He gives them life. The scales don't tip that way just by a grain of sand or two. They fully tip in the brothers' favor by mercy. It was the result of Joseph looking back on all the places he'd been and all the crazy, wacko things that had happened. Even dangerous things that led up to now. I'll take care of you, he says. What you did to me, yeah, you meant it for evil. You meant to kill me. But God, he meant it for good. God sent me here to preserve life, not take it away. And the reason it's important to remember all this, as Joseph remembered all this, is because if you were to desire to stand in his shoes too soon, you might not recall that hardship first calloused his feet, Beatings and imprisonment caused him to limp, and it was a progression, wasn't it? Likely under those expensive robes were scars. And that isn't just the cost of knowing God's plan, it's the steps taken to live it. The necessary hurts to take him from a bratty kid who thought he held the world in his hands to the instrument of life in God's hands. All of which is to say that if you wish to know, as Joseph knows, 
to know God's plan for you, look no further than to the man Joseph foreshadowed. A man who was despised by his brothers, a man who was the favorite of the father, who entered the pit and proclaimed in prison, publicly humiliated and crucified, reputation ruined, who chose to give life instead of death, to give his bread for your hunger, and offers mercy rather than revenge for all your offenses against his father, who tips the scale in your favor by his favor, and of course, he asks nothing of you who've been the recipients of his mercy, love, and compassion, which is then given by you to others whom you forgive for the sin against you. No one forgives as perfectly as Jesus Christ. And as wounded as we'll be from forgiving, for laying down ourselves for another, in the end we'll be able to hold our heads high, high enough because through it all, like Joseph, with Jesus Christ, we'll be living God's real plan for us. It's not a plan of climbing the ladder to the top. It's one of lying at the bottom of the pit with trust in Jesus and patience born of faith in Him that He can work through whatever mess today and tomorrow brings. Amen. P.S. Yesterday we had a funeral here for our beloved sister in Christ, Ethel Simpson. And if you were here, you remember there was a slideshow at the end with some music to accompany it. And one of the songs was that war horse from 1969, My Way by Frank Sinatra. The lyrics were written by Paul Anka, who had his own version, but it was nowhere near as popular as Sinatra's version. My colleagues hate that song. <laughs> I don't mind it so much, it's okay. And, and, and it was a, a great tongue-in-cheek uh, way to... Because we know in Ethel's slideshow, because we, we all know Ethel liked to do things her way, right? But, uh, I don't know, Lutheran pastors tend to really despise that song because it goes against everything we try to preach from the Bible, right? You want to live your life God's way, not your way. You know, you, you get the impression when you hear Frank sing the song that he's some gray-suited, retired Madison Avenue executive who spent the last 40 years stepping on people, chewing on them and spitting them out to climb the ladder, and now he's enjoying his golden parachute retirement, and he doesn't care who he screwed over or left his wife and kids at, the, at home while he worked, you know, 80 hours a week at the office. He did it, by golly, he did it his way. Yeah. I mean, it's typical Mad Men era stuff. Okay, but just remember this, right? When you look back at your life as Frank does in the song, it's been God's way all along, even through all the sin, the sadness and joys, the highs and lows, to bring you to this moment and bring you to your new home on the new earth on the last day. So there is something to learn from good old blue eyes, I guess, right? You don't have to throw your Frank Sinatra records in the garbage when you get home. It's still okay. All right. May the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.